right, we're in Matthew 1, so go ahead and head that way today. It's the uh, very beginning of the New Testament. Let me find my way there. That's not Matthew. That's Matthew. All right, so it is a, uh, the last Sunday of Advent for us, last Sunday of Advent today. <clears throat> this is the season whereby we are, uh, as Christ's church, we are celebrating the arrival of the most significant person in the history of the world, the arrival, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to be, uh, look at our Lord's birth in the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, chapter 1, we're going to be beginning in verse 18. Uh, and like we've been doing this whole Advent period here, we're just going to jump right in, no big introduction of any sort, and get right to it. So, uh, follow along, beginning in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found, found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. God, you are love. And you have loved your people in ways that we can hardly get our minds around. We thank you for revealing your great love through your beautiful word. Father, we ask that you would make us people who feel love, who feel compassion, affection, and all other emotions. But more than that, make us a people who are grounded in the truth that you have given. May our lives be fueled and directed by your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enlighten our minds this morning to understand better the depth of your love for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's always that question this time of year. It's the one Charlie Brown wrestled with, right? What's the meaning of Christmas? Now, it took him an entire Christmas special. I'm going to move this over here because it's driving me nuts. It took him an entire Christmas message to finally get to an answer as that. Now, in general, I think we as Christians have a good understanding when we want to answer that. What's the meaning of Christmas, right? It's about the birth of Jesus. It's about the birth of Christ. Uh, it's when we celebrate his birthday. Now, to be fair, it's probably not his actual birth date. Uh, there are a lot of explanations for why that is, uh, why this date was picked. Uh, and yet, none of those will help us get any closer to the question of what is the meaning of Christmas, the true meaning of Christmas. You see, Christmas is about the love of God for sinners like you like me. Now, I want to show you that in Matthew today, and uh, unless you, and we'll start with this, unless you read a lot of, of Jane Austen or what, Jane Eyre, you probably don't use the word betrothed very often. Uh, we tend to equate it with the modern idea of, of being engaged, right? There's a ring 
uh, a verbal intention to marry someone, but betrothed is a much bigger deal, a much more significant situation than in modern engagement. It was more significant in, in that it was an actually legally binding commitment. Um, you're looking at me. You two are engaged or betrothed, right? You don't know. Probably engaged because there's no legally binding commitment on you. And so, you see, that's, that's the reason, though, because it's this idea here. It's, it, this is why in the, in the ESV and most other translations, they don't actually update it like they do a lot of words. They don't just sub it out. Let's just put engage. People know what that means instead. Uh, and, and so you've got to understand that Joseph and Mary at this point, they have a legally binding commitment to be married to each other, not just a, a, a ring and a you know, romantic story that was on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. Now, most likely their, their parents actually arranged this. And uh, once they, were, once they uh, gave their blessing, it was announced publicly, and everyone else in the community would know this, and that was the expectation. And after that, there's this long period, sometimes uh, as long as a year before the actual wedding. And since betrothal has this legal status, uh, it could only be broken through divorce, right, or death, and those are the two options. Uh, simply put, betrothal is, is a lot more like we tend to think of marriage today. Uh, in its legal understanding. And so that's why in this passage, in fact, even though these two are not married at this point, uh, Joseph is referred to as Mary's husband, and later Mary is referred to as his wife. Now, it's important to also note that sexual relations were not permitted during this time of betrothal. The bride typically lived with her parents, the, the, the groom somewhere else uh, nearby. Uh, and so it's not hard for us to see that this situation that, that Mary finds herself in looks an awful lot like unfaithfulness to Joseph. Um, think about it. Here's Joseph uh, talking to his fiance. Uh, surely he knows something's up. Mary's acting weird. What's going on? And eventually, somehow it comes out. She tells him, well, um, I'm pregnant, right? And, and you can only imagine what those words would mean for him in that moment. Joseph's not an idiot. He knows the cause of pregnancy. He can put this together. He's 100% certain that he is not the father of this, this child if she's pregnant. And and so what do you think Mary's thinking in this moment? We're, we're not told what she's thinking, but it's not difficult to imagine for her that it's not an easy thing. Now, keep in mind, while, while Mary's likely embarrassed and anxious, at this point she knows, even if no one else knows it, she knows that she's absolutely innocent here. Mary knows that she has been faithful to Joseph, her, her betrothed, uh, and faithful to the Lord. And still, even she knows she can't prove it. There's no way to explain this. I look incredibly guilty. And so picture yourself, if you will, as a gecko on the wall, as Mary tries to explain this, this innocence to, to, to Joseph, knowing full well that she sounds absolutely insane the more she tries to explain this. You know, you know don't be upset, Joseph. I, I've been faithful. I really have. It's God through the Holy Spirit who has made me pregnant. That's, that's what it is. And does Joseph believe her? Of course not. Of course not. He, he doesn't. Who would? It's an impossible explanation. And so he's, he's faced with these three options at this point. He could marry her anyway. That's an option. But if he did, that's a, a public admission of, of guilt, right? His guilt at this point. It would be proclaiming that Mary's uh, pregnant as a result of his sin with her. Or Joseph could publicly divorce her. This is a technical term. This means uh, to go through the, the Jewish courts, um, and the way this would work is she would be absolutely public disgrace because they would gather and there'd be a bunch of people there. Um, and, and it would be terrible for her, but it'd be good for him because it would clear his name. You know what? He was betrothed to her and she was unfaithful and it's terrible, but, he, but 
poor Joseph, at least he's a good guy. He did the right thing. Um, it would make him innocent of any wrongdoing. And, and here we begin to learn what kind of man he is because there is a third option, and third option is what he actually decides to do. And the third option is this, to divorce her quietly. Again, this is a technical term, a legal term in this sense. It means to privately, without the public courts, actually divorce uh, Mary. And it only requires two witnesses. Only two other people really have to know, although others would certainly find out. Now, we're, told if Mary, we're not told if Mary knew whether Joseph planned to divorce her or not, but certainly that's what's going through her mind. She knows that's an option, and we know that after she shares it with Joseph, off, she go, or off he goes to think about these things, consider what he's going to do. And, and my heart just aches when I imagine the anguish that Mary's going through. Imagine she is somewhere in the realm of 13, 14 years old, very, very young, um, The opportunity to be angry at God is there, just waiting to be unwrapped and embraced by her. She she could be thinking, God, I have been faithful. I have remained sexually pure, and now you have called me, made me to carry this child. My my husband's probably going to leave me. My parents are going to be so disappointed in me. I'm going to face public shame. What are my friends going to say? You, you know I'm innocent, God. You know I'm innocent, but, but my life is ruined. Why, God? Why are you so mean to me? These, these are the things that Mary could be saying. It'd be difficult, in fact, for, for Mary at this moment to believe that God loves her. Because if he loved her, why would he put her through this? Some irony, then, that all of this is part of God showing just how deeply he does love Mary, just how deeply he loves others whom he's going to redeem as well. And so then Joseph is sparing Mary public shame, but he does plan to divorce her. That's what he's going to do. And then in verse 20, we, we see one of those wonderful things. In, in Scripture, you see him all the time. Keep your eyes out for him. But you see the word but, right? It always tells us that there's something you expect going down this line, but here's what actually happens. You look at verse 20 again. Look at it. Uh, But as Joseph considered these things, those things meaning to quietly divorce her, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Wow. Now, if I'm honest, when when Laura and I were engaged, if she turned up pregnant and tried to explain to me, listen, I know this looks bad, but I have been faithful. It was the Holy Spirit who did this, who caused this. Um, I, sure, yeah, okay. I mean, who, who agrees to that? Now, now listen, I, I would respond to her something like, listen, Laura, I, in seventh grade science, I happen to have aced the reproduction unit. That's the only one I aced, true story. Um, but I'm fairly certain uh, that miraculously made pregnant by the Holy Spirit, nowhere in there. Didn't see anything about that. That is not a normal thing. Um, in other words, I would have assumed that this woman, this girl who I love, is lying to me in this moment because nothing else makes any sense to me. Lying or crazy, I guess that's the other option. But, but you know what would have convinced me that she was telling the truth? If a real angelic being visiting me, even in a dream, with a message from the Lord, um, truly that would do it. That's about the only thing I think that would convince me of such craziness. And in this moment of Joseph's life, something beautiful happens. You see what the solution of Joseph's fears are here? Belief. He's trusting this message from the angel. Psalm 56.3 tells us, when I am afraid, I put my trust 
in God. And here is Joseph afraid of what the future is. And here is Joseph putting his trust in God. And, and he had to trust despite what it looked like. <clears throat> he had to trust that God was doing something here, not, not to just destroy him, but doing something here that could be wonderful. To, to trust that God could and did actually make Mary pregnant in this miraculous way, despite whatever his seventh grade science teacher told him. To, to trust that God loves him, even as God places him in this incredibly painful social and life situation in this moment, uh, trusting is, is always a solution to fear. I've got a couple stories. I know some of you have heard these before, but this first one is when our girls were learning to swim, um, this actually came up in a conversation just the other day, uh, the instructors put these bubbles on them. I don't know if you've seen them. I don't even know if they still use them. They're like turtle shells that snap onto them, and it makes them where they cannot sink at all. You can't even get under if you try to. Um, and the instructor explained to them both, here's how it works. We put this on, you cannot sink here, so you see how it works, and you're good, and then left them alone on their own. And one of our girls actually believed the instructor at this moment and, and trusted immediately. The, the other one of our girls didn't believe a word she said. Uh, and the experience of each of these, these children was vastly different. The, the one who did not trust clung to the instructor, looked like a cat trying to get swimming lessons in there, just crawling and screaming and crying the, the whole time. Uh, you can imagine you're standing with other parents there, you know, which one's yours? Uh, the one swimming and the cat-like one over there trying to kill our instructor. That's mine. Um, she cried the whole time. She wasn't learning to swim. It was miserable. But the one who did trust jumped in with joy, happy as a, a clam, excited to swim, and did learn. No, no fear, no anxiety, because she was able to trust uh, in this situation. The, the fearful one eventually did trust, but only after she was convinced on her own that it actually worked in the way that she was told it was going to work. Now, when she did, her fear went away, when she trusted the bubble anyway. Joy returned. She learned to swim like a little fish. Later, when the bubbles came off, we had to kind of go through it all over again uh, with Laura and I this time in the water with them. Uh, they had to trust us when we said, listen, this water is deep to you. I know that. I know it seems scary, and um, it's not deep to me, though. I'm, I'm standing. My feet are on the ground. I will not let you drown. And, and it's a whole other opportunity to, to learn how to trust there. Now, again, their anxieties went away the moment they learned to trust. Now, Joseph <clears throat> needed here not to be convinced of the plan, right? Like, come on, angel, lay this out. Convince me this is a good idea. Show me everything you're doing, and I'll, I'll maybe agree to it at some point and be okay with this. And that's not what he needed. He, he needed to simply trust the word of the Lord at this point, even without knowing the entire story at that point. And so he just stops being afraid, and he takes Mary as his wife, and his actions by doing so show that he actually trusts the Lord in this moment. And so now the angel has this message for Joseph. You remember what it is? Look at verse 21. Let's see it again. Uh, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So Joseph learns five important things in this little message here. The first one is this. Um, he learned that his fiancée has indeed been faithful, right? That what she said was true, that the Lord is really doing this. That's the first thing he learns. The second thing he learns is that 
Mary is going to have a baby boy. And we're so used to sonograms and 3D sonograms that'll like tell you what cartoons your kids are going to like. Um, we're so used to it that you forget to see the miracle here that, that he's telling him that this is the gender of the child in your womb and you're going to know it before anyone. And, and that's actually a really big deal. Um, no, none of his friends knew that. <clears throat> Third, <clears throat> Joseph is told uh, what to name his son. Uh, God shows his love for us in this name and the name he's to give him is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua which literally means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. Uh, and this tells Joseph actually a fourth thing here, that the child's going to be no ordinary child because this child is the salvation of God's people. Now, did you notice something here? Uh, that the angel doesn't say uh, Jesus comes to free the Jews from the Romans or anything of that nature. He says Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. That, that's what's going on. And in Acts 4.12, we learn the eternal significance of Jesus' name. There it says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. None. Only Jesus. Which is why we, we profess faith not in God in some general theism idea of God, but we profess our faith in Jesus Christ the Lord specifically. Now, as I first studied this years ago, I got stumped by something that kind of bothered me, that the fact that the angel here says, you know what, name this child Jesus because he's going to save his people. And then he references this, this, this old prophecy in Isaiah 7, 14, and the prophecy there says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that's not right. Why did the prophecy say to name this boy Emmanuel? And the angel says, you know what, name this boy Jesus. As if, like, right? What's going on here? Now, now remember this. Je Je Jesus means Jehovah is salvation, while Emmanuel means God is with us. Not the same thing. But why does the angel not say, name the child Emmanuel? And the, the reason is this. Emmanuel is not to be his name because Emmanuel is actually a description of who Jesus is. It's not to say you can't refer to him that, as that, <clears throat> but that's not a specific name. Sa same way we see in Isaiah 9, 6, uh, the word name is used for description. Remember Isaiah 9, 6, for uh, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. They, these are not, these are names that describe Jesus, but not his actual name to be given. Which is really helpful, right? Because we use phrases like, Jesus is my Lord, right? And if this is his actual name, we'd have to say things like, uh, Emmanuel, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, son of the most high, is my Lord. That would be really redundant. And I mean, can you imagine those of you that lived through the late 90s, right? Remember the WWJD bracelet? It, it would have been WWIWCMGEFPOPSOTMHD. Doesn't have the same ring to it. Um, <clears throat> It, it's a description, not his actual name. And, and so then the birth of, of Jesus fulfills the prophecy of being called Emmanuel because Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity. And in the birth of, of Jesus, God comes to dwell among his people. Now in the Gospel of, of John, in the very first sentence, in fact, uh, speaks of this. Jesus in, in this passage is referred to as the Word. 
That's why when you read it, you see the big capital W there, right? So you know that it's talking about someone in the Trinity. It's Jesus. Then it reads, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word, capital W, was with God, and the Word, capital W, was God. And then 13 verses later in John 1.14, we read, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. It's, it's right for us to call, um, to, to call Jesus Emmanuel because Jesus is God with us. That describes who Jesus is. And Jesus is the name he's given. And so then the next morning, Joseph wakes up, and what does he do? And I absolutely love this. Every time I come across this passage again, I love it. Look at verse 34. I want you to see this. When, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He trusted God, his fear removed. Right? Joseph obeys God. Even though Joseph has resolved to divorce Mary quietly on his own, that's his conclusion, he now instead does what God desires him to do in this moment. Can we learn from this? Joseph's not worried at this point. What, what are people going to think? What are my parents going to think? My friends going to think? What, what are people going to think? They're going to think that I, I, I've been sleeping with her. They're going to think all these things about me, and he's not so worried about that. He's not worried about the assumptions that are going to be made. He, he's just obeying the Lord. And so he takes Mary to be his wife. And so the incarnation, in the incarnation, we see the love of God for his people, for, for us. We see God shows his love for us by his presence, that he comes and dwells among his creation. He shows his love by his provision. He provides the perfect life and sacrifice that, that the justice of God required. We see the love of God in his promise. He, he fulfills the promise that's first mentioned all the way back in Genesis 3.15, which, which is often called the proto-gospel, and, and the promise that is more fleshed out in Isaiah and other, other places much later. Uh, Jesus will show the love of God by the life he lives, by the death he dies, by the salvation he accomplishes for us, and, and by the hope that he brings through his resurrection and the promise of ours. The last thing I want to help us see today is that God not only loved us, but God today continues to love you. I know we know this in theory, right? Does God love you? Yes, God loves me. Of course he loves me. The Bible tells me so. Um, but Christian, do you, do you honestly believe that? Like deep down in every moment of your life, do you, do you know today, moment by moment, then when things aren't going well, when, when things are going well, when things are crummy, do you, do you know that because you are a child of God, by faith in Jesus, that God truly loves you dearly? Do you know this? Some of you know this story. Again, I've been sharing a lot of stories lately that you already know if you've been here a while. Um, I'm going to share it again because honestly it challenges me to come back to this again, to, to see and to know that, that God loves me. Um, five or six years ago, I'm at a church planter retreat, a bunch of guys, you know, fireplaces and teaching and prayer and, and stuff like that. It's in Podunk, Arkansas. I don't recall the actual name of the town. Uh, and on the first morning, I was up early. I had been for a walk. I come in and I, I wander into the kitchen and I meet this 74-year-old woman from uh, Liberia. Liberia. Uh, and she tells me her name is Miss Fifi. I didn't check her driver's license, but that's what she goes by. Um, she cooked breakfast for 35 men while I worked to crack open some of those pecans I'd found on my walk. And um, y'all know I can be awkward sometime, and so I just began to kind of ask these questions. And one of them, so Liberia, huh? I, 
I don't even know what continent that's on, but how in the world did you end up in Arkansas? And, and her face just lit up like, I don't, it just like sunshine. And, and she said, because God is so good to me. And she told me about this war in her country, uh, about how her father was shot and killed right at the beginning of the war, uh, about the way she had traveled to the United States just days before it had begun, the war had begun. And I'm thinking to myself how terrible this, this poor woman. And, and at the same time, she just comes out, God is so good to me. And, and genuine, right? Like, absolutely, you can hear in her voice, she's absolutely genuine about this, not trying to convince herself of it. And the story goes on that she married an unbelieving man who later divorced her because she couldn't have children. Uh, but then God provided her a, a new husband, a, a husband who loved the Lord, and she was so excited about that. And, and she looks me in the eyes and she says, God is so good to me. Uh, which is really, or no, well, she asked me, why is God so good to me? And, and that's really, I don't know if you know this, it's an awkward question to answer when you have to, because uh, he is, I don't know. Like, keep telling the story, maybe I'll tell you. I'm, I mean, how do you answer that? But anyway, she, she's saying God is so good to me because her new husband, um, she and her new husband have given up hope for children. Like, he knows this going in. They're not going to have children. And then unexpectedly, at the age of 42, 42, she becomes pregnant. Uh, a, a few years later, God gives them a second healthy child unexpectedly. And she asks me again, why is God so good to me? They, they go on to help start up this church, and the building they're meeting in just crumbles and falls apart, and it gets condemned. They can't go in anymore, and so they just donate their own house. We, you know, the church can meet in our house, and we'll tear out the walls and all these kind of things. Uh, at this point, she tells me, uh, back then, I, I didn't like or trust white people, which is awkward when you're a white person. Um, but she says, then I was introduced to this, this white man who works for this organization. They build... Um, and they build them this new home for their house, and it's absolutely free. And then she asked me again, you know, why is God so good to me? Well, only at this point does she tell me that three weeks before the conversation we're having, her husband has died. Uh, he's had a heart attack. She says it's not surprising that he died while serving the Lord because he was always serving the Lord. And she tells me just how stressed she's been because she was going to cost her $7,000 to bury her husband. Uh, only... God leads the same white man that built the house to come build them a home to pay for the, you know, to pay for the entire funeral. And, and can you guess what she asked me next? She asked, why is God, can you finish it, so good to me? Why? In this whole conversation, I, I kept looking at her life and thinking, wow, there is a lot of ways that God has failed you. There are a lot of things you have to complain about. There are a lot of things that have just been rough in your life, lady. Um, but Miss Fifi just kept pointing me back to this, just how wonderful her Lord is, how wonderful he has loved her. Uh, and, and with this genuine joy, she just kept saying, I, I say to the Lord, I don't know why you love this African woman so much. And, and, and now... I mean, think about your own life for a moment. Think, think about just the perspective that we, we tend to have. Because we also ask God why questions often. Only the one I, I hear most often, the one I'm sometimes tempted in my heart to ask is, why did you allow this to happen to me, God? Why, why are you so mean to me? Or, or are you mad at me? Why are these things going on in my life? When's the last time you, you prayed, Lord, I don't know why you love me so much. Or you're just shocked by the love of the Lord for you. 
You and I, we, we need to learn to look for ways that God loves us through our days. And, and, and let's start with the love that God has shown us in the Advent and the coming of Christ. This is no small thing. There is nothing more significant, right? Prove me wrong. I'll be the guy with the coffee cup. There's nothing more significant in the history of the world. Christian, God has proven his love for you in this, this miracle, in, in this act of the Advent, with, with Jesus coming to dwell with us for the purpose of dying for us in order to save us. And, and we dwell on the, on the birth of Christ. As we dwell on the birth of Christ, let us, let us ponder in our hearts and, and say with our lips, let's, let's make this a phrase. They're not saying you've got to do it like she does, but in some way, you know, Lord, I don't know why you love me so much. I don't know why you'd send Christ. I mean, you look at creation and you just see, look, at they, I gave them perfection and they just ruined it all. Why? Why redeem us? And so we begin asking, you know, I don't know why you love me so much. God, you are so good to me. Let us embrace the good news of the incarnation. No, no matter how difficult the, the news that we are facing in our life might be, no matter how difficult the days ahead might be. You see, if your faith's in Jesus, you are a child of God with a heavenly Father who loves you deeply and who has redeemed you for all of eternity. God loves us so much that he came and he dwelled among us so that he could take, away, take us away to dwell with him for all of eternity, forever. And we will. We will dwell with God for all of eternity. And in short, as Christmas Day approaches and as one of the most difficult years in, in recent history closes, let, let us learn to ask, God, why do you love me so much? Why do you love me so much? Lord, why are you so good to me? Let's pray. Lord, today we, we celebrate your story, a history that tells us just how great your love for us is, love that led you to take action to save our souls, action that cost you dearly. Teach us to trust you, God, not to be convinced of everything and agree to it, but to trust you, to trust your love for us in the, in the sending of Jesus, but also to trust your love for us no matter how difficult a situation we might find ourselves in. God, you are bigger than everything, stronger than everything, wiser than everything, more holy and wonderful. Lord, help us to trust that your feet are on solid ground, even when it feels like we're swimming in the abyss. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.